I'm willing to view her every once in a while as like this guardian of the family who is trying super hard to be sure that her children live a good life. podcast listeners and welcome back to no script an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts i am jackson nikolai i am jacob mann christensen and jackson may not be but i'm welcoming all those who aren't just podcast listeners (laughs) okay you're you're (laughs) listeners of all kinds just to i just try to be open and welcoming jackson's one of those hierarchical yeah you gotta have a gotta be a podcast person (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep that that's that describes me too to well, welcome <laughs> however you are listening i'll broaden the category i guess thank you for tuning into another episode of no script we're jumping into a little bit of american theater history today yeah oh yeah almost 100 years old is this play we're a little bit shy about 85 years i think but we are it is it is getting up there to being one of the one of the relics one of the greats of american theater history and of one this playwright I don't know, unless you're somebody who's studied theater, been around theater for a long, long time, this may not be a playwright that you've heard of, but I think both Jackson and I would say this is a playwright you should hear of. And if this Mm -hmm. is the first time hearing about this playwright, we're glad that you're doing it on our podcast. The incredible, incredible Clifford Odette. Yeah, Clifford Odette. Odette. He's a he's a uh, one of America's uh, playwrights right in the like 1930s area. I'll talk a little bit more when I do the context later, but a lot of a lot of people were inspired by him. He's a, a huge pivotal part of theater. A lot of people know his play Waiting for Lefty and we're actually not doing that play today. That's right. Yeah, so if you've not heard of the name Clifford Odets, it it might be that somewhere in your consciousness you've heard the phrase Waiting for Lefty or the title Waiting for Lefty. That's Clifford Odets' most famous play by far. I'm sure someday we will come back and do the great waiting for lefty but today instead we're talking about probably his second most famous play of all time just a really riveting incredible gritty painful family drama awake and sing yeah awake and sing and it's all the things jacob just described it's this you know family kind of gritting through early american capitalism and uh just maybe middle american capitalism um and just like figuring out like how 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 best to survive in America. So I'm excited to get to dig into it. That's right. But before we start talking about that, we want to ask all of you to please head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. That's patreon.com slash no script podcast. There you can become a supporter, a patron of this show. The show is so much fun for us. It's something that we're passionate about. It's something that we love to do. It's just not free. And because it's not free, I know, alas, (laughs) because alas, it's not free. We are asking you to help cover the costs of producing this show to support us in doing it we've got a lot of great supporters already we're so thankful for them what an amazing blessing to have folks over there already supporting us but if you're not one of them yet i hope that you feel like you are getting return on value of the time spent with us to go on over and be a supporter the lowest tier on patreon for us is one dollar a month total twelve dollars a year i think you're getting one dollar a month worth of value when you listen to no script so i hope you feel that too you'd head on over there and support us if you become 
become a supporter. There's patron-only posts over there. We do give advance notice on scripts over there. So that's a perk for those of you who are interested in that kind of stuff. But for the, the big thing, I think, is that we'd love for you to join us in supporting this show. So $1 a month is the lowest tier. Head on over there, patreon.com slash podcast. Yeah, we are so grateful for everyone who has been over there. So thank you all, and thank you for checking out our Patreon over there. Uh, one other bit of business before we jump into the play. Uh, we did want to just let you all that we're doing our themed month for this season coming up in three episodes. I got that right, Jacob? That's right, yeah. So the, uh, when, starting in April, April will be our themed month for this season. If you've been a listener for a while, or even if you're new and you're, you've listened to some of the backlogs, you might know that once a season, we take one month, typically four episodes, and instead of just picking what we try to do, which is a variety of plays from across theater history, across voices, we focus in on one idea or concept. So in the past, we've done four musicals right in a row and compared and contrasted those musicals and their different styles as we went. We did a whole month just on Arthur Miller plays. We did a whole month of plays that all have magic in them. And we talked about the different ways that magic works in drama and in storytelling. Well, this season, we're doing something different than all of that yeah we are looking at a length so this this season's themed month is mini month by which we mean mini play i.e a one act yeah, one act play, which doesn't always mean a short play, but it does mean that it's, you know, a play in one act. And and don't worry, you're not getting less podcast time. We're not doing short podcasts for many months. We're just engaging uh, one act plays. And it's a completely different medium, as all of you know, completely different way to bring across an artistic vision in, in a short kind of compact play. So I'm really excited to get to dig into those. Mark your calendars. Uh, we'll be releasing the plays uh, ahead of time, uh, I believe next week or so sometime around there we'll release the the plays for you all if you want to order it's a good it's if you're wanting to get in on reading the script ahead of time and listening to the episode good uh season for that so uh you'll see more about that in the coming weeks that's right. There are so many great one acts in dramatic literature. It's just some incredible, incredible stories and scripts. So we're looking forward. We're only going to get to do four this time. We may do more one acts in the future, but this time we only get to do four. So we're pretty excited. Hope you are too. We'll see you in April for mini month. Now, back to the script. <laughs> um, so uh, we are going to be jumping in to Awake and Sing by Clifford Odets. Uh, we do like to contextualize it just a little bit, which uh, is my task for the day. Uh, the play was originally produced by the Group Theater, which is a very famous uh, American theater ensemble that was uh, in operation around 1930s. Um, the play premiered at the Belasco Theater in 1935, um, and uh, it, it ran there. It was part of uh, that 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 season. It uh, it has then had a lot of revivals. It's revived off-Broadway in 1970, 79, 93, 95. Um, probably most notably, at least in recent history, was the 2006 production that had 80 performances and uh, included uh, a pretty star-studded cast for the time. There was Zoni Wanamaker, Ben Gazzara, Mark Ruffalo played one of the roles in it, and uh, that one got a lot of press because it was in the original theater that it was produced. It was the, the, the like, 100 
hundred year anniversary of uh, Clifford Odette's birth, I believe. And uh, and uh, yeah, it was it's a, it was a cool festival that had a lot of uh, history around it. So um, that's probably the last time it was uh, big in the news. Although in 2015, the most recent notes that I have, uh, 2015, it was at the Public Theater where the National Asian American Theater Company presented it. That 2006 production I mentioned uh, won Best Revival of a Play at the Tony Awards, Best Costume Design, and was nominated for Light Design, Scenic Design, Best Direction, Actress, and Actor. So it was a great production. Um, uh, so that's 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 the the most recent. Um, edition of the play. As far as context for this playwright goes, uh, Clifford Odette's kind of sits between Chekhov and Miller. Um, so if you can kind of picture that that time frame, a lot of people thought he was the heir apparent to Eugene O'Neill um, at the time of, of, of American theater, at least. So he started writing plays around that 1930s range, a lot of political drama coming out of the World Wars. And uh, so that's that's kind of his... his uh, era of time is that time before Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams came around, but after Chekhov. So that 2006 production that Jackson referenced in 2010, a recorded production of Awake and Sing was made. It's not exactly the same cast, but it is a very, very similar cast. Many of the roles are the same, including Mark Ruffalo, that you can buy an audio recording or probably rent it from libraries, an audio recording of this play. Uh, I bought mine at LATW, which we've referenced several times in before, who are really good at making audio recordings, or, or at least they're a database where you can buy audio recordings. Highly recommended. It's an incredibly awesome recording of a play that is, it helps to hear. I, I will, I think I will say, I think I feel comfortable saying that. It helped me to hear this one, hear actors interpret the language, which is at times a little bit confounding to the written, to the, to the visual eye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of vernacular. Yes, so the play is about the Berger family. Uh, They live in a small flat in Brooklyn, or I'm sorry, in in the Bronx in New York City. Myron and Bessie are the matriarch and patriarch. Uh, Bessie, in her character description, and it it, it echoes what she claims later in the play, which is that she's sort of both the mother and father in this household. Myron is... He's not lazy, I wouldn't say, but he's he's maybe a little bit absent uh, or yeah, uh, I don't know. Jackson, help me out. He's, he's he's like Mike's dad from Stranger Things. He's just like <laughs> <laughs> the, the, like you know. Um, yeah, he's he's not always he's a little bit oblivious sometimes to to what he's doing and uh, kind of plays the the I don't know a stereo archetype of, of of a father who kind of wanders through the house at times. Yeah, and I mean uh, he's not absent in that he's gone, but he's sort of absent from the room, even yeah. when he's in the room sometimes. Um, so that's Myron and Bessie. They have two children, Henny and Ralph. Uh, also, Bessie's father Jacob lives with them in this apartment. They have also have a boarder named Mo, who is a young man, uh, an adult man. They're, they they have a, an uncle who's Bessie's brother named Morty. There's another guy named Sam that comes around. These are the characters. And it's important to understand the characters and their relationships because really, ultimately, that's the play. They these This group of people in this small apartment battle against each other. Bessie really wants their, her children to live this sort of very regimented, she has sort of planned for them life. 
uh, that had deals a lot with their class and a lot with improving their lot. Uh, Ralph really wants to break free of this family and their expectations for him. He has dreams about what he calls getting to first base, which is not uh, uh, like a sexual innuendo, uh, but is instead referencing sort of getting the head start, the first step out into real life. Henny, too, is sort of looking for this lifelong ultimate happiness, and uh, she's not finding it in places, and she's battling against her family. Mo really wants to marry Henny, but there's uh, an unfortunate, painful sexual history between the two of them that causes her to reject him. Uncle Morty's a very successful businessman who has to go see his fairly impoverished family every once in a while. Uh, The things that happen in the play that cause all these things to grit against each other. Let's see, maybe Jackson and I can both try to work out a couple of the things. One of the major things that is that Henny gets pregnant, and she doesn't tell us who the father is of that pregnancy, but her mother, in an effort to maintain the family respect and decency, uh, immediately tries to marry Henny off to Sam, who is a recent Jewish immigrant uh, who works with Myron, and that works. That, that in Act 1, it's discovered that she's pregnant, in Act 2, she and Sam are married. The, the next act is a year later, and they have their child, who the, the whole family is pulling one over on Sam that the child is actually his. Um, whether Henny truly loves Sam, truly wants to be in a relationship with him, and wants to stay with him is probably one of the f- major driving things that happens. Mm-hmm. And and in, in some ways, the the two things that drive the play is that that weird stra- like broken love story, and then another broken love story between uh, Ralph and his girlfriend Blanche, who uh, we never meet Blanche uh, on stage in the play, but we hear about her a whole lot. And it's this uh, Blanche is uh, not someone who Bessie approves of. Uh, Bessie, the mom, um, she she does not want Ralph to be uh, dating her specifically. Uh, it's again a class thing. Uh, uh, Blanche is an orphan so she's she's not seeing ralph marrying up into society um and she wants more from him wants him to think about his life a little bit more and ralph is just kind of especially towards the beginning of the play pretty hopelessly in love with blanche so so that action that tension especially between ralph and his parents uh builds throughout the play the other major event that drives the action of the play is the relationship between Jacob, the grandfather, and Ralph, his grandson. They are often aligned. Uh, Jacob is a a revolutionary, a, a student, a disciple, not in the literal sense, but in the studying sense of Marx. And he, I think early in the play, he says that the point of life is to bring about the revolution. Yeah. I said that in a Russian accent, of course, but they're all Jewish. <laughs> right, right. Um, but um, so he's aligned with Ralph in that he wants to see this ultimate revolution, but he also loves his grandson. And, and Ralph is sort of revolutionary in his own way, too, in trying to break out and start his own life. And their alignment comes to a real head at the end of Act 2 when it's discovered Jacob jumped slash fell off of the roof and died, and he left his life insurance money to Ralph and not to the rest of the family. And that takes that action then causes a lot of what occurs in act three yes 
I think those are the 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 big beats at least. There's there's one more sneaky one towards the end of the play that suddenly the relationship between Mo and Henny comes to a head pretty quickly at the end of the play. There's some hints of it throughout, mostly Mo um trying to get Henny to be with him and Henny shutting him down, but then the the last the last couple pages of the play, that storyline gets pushed to the fore and uh, we spend a, a good deal of the end of the play with it. Now, if it sounds like we're stumbling around a little bit to try to tell you what the story of the play is, <laughs> it's because we're stumbling around a little bit trying to yeah. tell you what the story of the play is. It's not especially clear, I think by intention, what the story is. And by the story, we're somewhat referencing like a protagonist, a central yeah. character around whom things revolve, but also a central journey. It's interesting, the last two plays we've talked about, Spinning into Butter and The Mountaintop, are in some ways very good examples of it being very clear. A protagonist yeah. on a journey, and there are lots of other substantive journeys that happen around those characters. Uh, Sarah in Spinning into Butter and Martin Luther King Jr. in The Mountaintop. The other characters in those plays have journeys that are interesting, and you're alongside of them, but it's very clear that there's a central journey of those plays. It, it Man, it would be tough to, to make any kind of a real case for something being the central story of this play as opposed to something else. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The, it, in, in, the, I feel like the only way to sort of synthesize it is to try to talk about the family as the protagonist of the play. Um, uh, this, this like amalgam of people, that's, that's the thing that kind of goes on the journey is the, the uh, power structures of this family, which uh, changed drastically from uh, page one to page 100 of this play. It is truly, truly, truly an ensemble show. Every, I mean, it's it's really remarkable. Uh, page to page, a different group of characters is on stage. <laughs> I mean, two characters, three characters will have an intense, incredibly gripping discussion. And then... For some reason, they all leave. <laughs> yeah, they're and just another gone. group of characters comes in and has an intense, gripping discussion that advances their plot. And yeah. then in the next act, it's a little bit different combinations of those characters, all advancing their own plot. I mean, you could really, really reasonably make a pretty strong case for Ralph and his journey as the central story of this play, for Hassie and her journey as the central story of this play, for Bessie and her journey as the central story of this play. <laughs> Those are perhaps the main three, if yeah. you had to. But all of those journeys only function in relationship to other characters. Yeah, it's only interesting because they're coming up against other characters and and their relationship with them, how they're going to navigate their uh, power or powerlessness within the family system to try to bring about the change. I'm thinking a lot around the uh, kind of oftentimes antagonistic relationship between Ralph and his mother, Bessie. Um, it seems like if, if there were to be two, two planets in this play that pull gravity toward them, it's those two. Um, and so, so the, 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 the dynamic between them with uh, Ralph's kind of drive to, to do something with his life, to have some control over his world against Bessie's um, kind of matriarchal totalitarian family dynamic where, where almost everyone looks to Bessie to lead them. 
Uh, yeah, I, I want to make one small correction to something I mentioned earlier. I said Hassey, but I meant Henny, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's, the, the names in this play are li- they just are a little bit squishy. Uh, there's like three <laughs> characters that all start with an M. There's yeah. a Hass. There's a I almost said Hassey again. There's a Bessie <laughs> and a and a Henny, a Bessie and a Henny. It uh-huh. gets a little bit squishy, and truthfully, the squishiness is also part of the experience. These people are all talking, many of them, there's very few scenes with just a couple of characters. It's a lot of large group scenes, and then some of the group will leave and leave a few characters, but then they'll come back in. The The kind of relationship of everybody being on stage negotiating with each other at one time is a fairly major part of the imagery and the sense of the story. In fact, if you look up lots of different production photos from different houses or you read lots of different reviews, a common theme that emerges is that set designers and directors will try to physicalize in the way the apartment is constructed the idea that they're all sort of squished in a place that's too small for them. So they'll reveal the wall studs so that there's not even really walls separating them. Or they will have almost nothing on stage but just a sort of a tightly constricted box that everybody has to negotiate in. I mean, that's a common image to represent the fact that everybody's kind of on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's represented by um, there not being space for Ralph, um, or at least within the words of the play that's represented by um, Jacob, uh, the, the grandfather of the family, has what was Ralph's room. And they're renting out a room to Mo. So Ralph is... Presumably on a couch somewhere. Or yeah, he actually a- says he has to sleep on a day bed in the living room. Yeah. And when he's complaining about that, Bessie's response is, well, once we get Henny married, then you'll be able to have a room finally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so in, in that way, he is, he is even his... He, even his uh, living space is not in control. He has nowhere to retreat within this family unit um, to tr- to try to like hold hold some ground of his own. And you can see why living in that kind of an environment for any of these characters, but specifically talking about Ralph, who doesn't even have his own room, what kind of a thermometer that would cause, right? The temperature building, the steam slowly climbing, why he wants to escape. And you're right when you mentioned earlier that some of this play, or even a large chunk of it, is this protagonist-antagonist kind of relationship, this kind of arch-nemesis, almost, relationship between he and his mother. In that way, and in a lot of different ways, the play reminds me a lot of The Glass Menagerie. The, this sort of overbearing, very has very clear ideas about how she wants her children's lives to go and will try to enforce those ideas paying off with an iron fist is Bessie to Amanda. And the idealist, escapist, almost has trouble even speaking the same language as the people he's around, is Ralph to Tom. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that... I- at least my experience of Bessie in this play ho- does a good job at holding it in balance a little bit. Um, she, I, I think the the wondering who the protagonist in fact is happens just a little bit more between them, or at least I'm willing to view her every once in a while as like this guardian of the family who is trying super hard to be sure that her children live a good life, and, and that way she's almost like a tragic hero. That 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 one trait about her drives her to kind of end up pushing uh, her two children away from her. 
Well, I think in that way, Odette's kind of look at impoverishment and especially the not not just impoverishment by virtue of not having a job, but the impoverishment of the working class in the time really comes through in a way that uh, Tennessee Williams just didn't focus on as much. It's there in Glass Menagerie, but it's not the, the one of the centerpieces. And in this play, it is the centerpiece. Probably, it probably, in fact, is the centerpiece of the play is this idea that this family cannot get ahead no matter what they do. Nobody wants to be in this situation. Everybody's working their butts off to get out of this situation, but there does not seem to be anywhere to go. There does not seem to be anything to do. Bessie in Act 1 brings up and then brings up several times after that what to me I think is one of the most haunting pictures of the play, which is she describes a family just down the street from them being evicted from their apartment and their furniture just tossed out onto the street. And that's the fear for them and especially for Bessie. Yeah, that it can all change on like a drop of a hat. Um, and and just the, the kind of perilous state that these people live in is just one, uh, as far as financial uh, security goes, uh, is just one more thing that adds to the pressure cooker of these four walls. It's just one more thing that's like always hanging over their head that they're always having to keep in their mind to the point that like a, a win on a horse at 15 to one with just a couple of cents they they joke towards uh, the uh, Myron wins some money on a horse at the beginning of the play. And it's cause for just jubilation um, that, that, that this, this big change has come into their life. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a fairly even presentation of viewpoints between, especially Bessie and Ralph, who have perhaps the most differing viewpoints of the play. Maybe setting aside Jacob, um, and it, one of the places where I see that come through really strongly, uh, Ralph is constantly talking about how he just can't afford to even buy himself a pair of shoes. And then later in the play, he, as he's sort of talking about the fact that now he works and makes money, and uh, but he's never really felt supported by the family. He brings up this really specific example that. When he was a kid, he was never even able to get like a pair of skates like his friends had. Like he always wanted a pair of skates, but he was never able to get them. And when he says that, I'm on his side. I feel for him. That is hard. I mean, that's tough. And he feels like his parents, you know, were never really willing to do that kind of a thing for him. They were always sort of pinch pennies is his sense of his parents. So you're, you're, you're with him and you're on board for that description of his life. And then as soon as Ralph leaves the room, basically, Bessie basically turns to the person next to her and says, yeah, okay, you're, he was right. We never got him a pair of skates as a kid, but that's because he was sick as a kid. And we had to use every spare dollar we had to get him to see specialists so that we could keep him alive. And then suddenly I'm on, I'm turned around. <laughs> yeah. I'm on Bessie's side. Oh like, man. Oh. Well, they, not only are they fi- strapped for cash because of the economic conditions of the time, but also Ralph was sick as a child and they're even more <laughs> strapped for cash. Okay. Now I get it. Mm-hmm. And another, I mean, another ev- more evidence of this family's kind of radical uh, generosity and hardship is the fact that Jacob is living with them. Sure, I mean, yeah. the, the the grandfather of the family is is living there. They even even though they have to rent out space to to someone else for for this system to work, they're 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 being a, a full family to Jacob as well. And this portrayal of kind of the the injustice of the system for the working class is also represented not just by the working class folks, the burgers, but also by Uncle Morty and by Mo. 
Uncle Morty is a wealthy businessman. We think he's in fashion. Yeah, or, clothing production or Yeah, maybe something. he owns a clothing store or maybe he works for a clothing company or something like that. But he makes a lot of money. Nobody is really in there any disagreement that he's pretty rich. In fact, at one point I, near the end of the play, it's a little clear, unclear whether he's truly exaggerating or being real upfront that he's like going to go home and count his millions. Yeah. <laughs> and just be real upset when he's, you know, a couple pennies short or something like that uh-huh. and at, at, at any case, right he he he's got a lot of money and then there's mo who also has money uh, partially because the government pays him a disability check mo was injured in the war and lost a leg and because of that he gets paid a disability check from the government but he also is into some shady stuff off of which he makes money. The horse gambling is sort of the least of it. At one point, we learned that he used to like run liquor back during Prohibition, and uh, he was involved in racketeering of some sort. So he is also, you know, making money sort of in the what we would call the black market, I guess, side of the world. Whereas Morty is more representative of the true capitalist world. And, but both of them are sort of painted with the same brush a number of times throughout the play. In fact, at one point, Uncle Morty even says something like, it's all a racket. Business, yeah. running liquor, horse gambling, it's all a racket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, they're, they're interesting flavor to be dropped into this family. And it's, and it's interesting to note, I, I wonder what you think about the fact that I don't think there's any moment where anyone asks them for their money in this play. Um, you know, a, a version of this play could be the drama about trying to get Morty to help the family out and and that relationship. But I think the only mention we have of Morty's interaction with the family is him saying that he s- sends like $6 a week to help with uh, them keeping their father, his father and Bessie's father there. Um, yeah, right. He he supports Jacob living in the house, which I assume is one of the reasons why Jacob lives there. But you're right. They they don't really ask him for money, which is interesting and, and probably speaks to, you know, Bessie is she's got some some pride, right? Mm hmm. And there's also I, I, she absolutely has some pride and some like kind of up by your own bootstraps. She's also leaning into and I think the play is leaning into the narrative of America at the time, especially, which was that pull you up by your own bootstraps. We still have this uh, bleeding through into our society of this like the dollar is king. I think that's even a line that is said around like here in America, the dollar rules all or something like that. And I think that aspect of the like your ability to pursue be perceived as a functioning human being is dependent on your ability to uh, support yourself and support your family and be sure that your family continues uh, to support itself in the future, which is Bessie's like, like if you, if you laid out the goals of Bessie, that's what she's doing in this play. She's providing for her family. She's protecting her family and ensuring that her family's longevity is secured. Right, and and that you can see that in in the way she wants to pick a partner for Henny, the 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 partner that she wants for her daughter is the description is like he's got a good business sense, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. he's, he's going to go out and make his dollar and support <laughs> my daughter, and that's who I want my daughter to end up with. And so when it's discovered that she's pregnant and they have to quick find her a husband to sort of cover up the pregnancy, they turn to Sam, this new immigrant from Europe, uh, basically because. The as Bessie says, he you know he's got a good business sense. He's he's gonna he'll he'll make it for himself. Yeah, 
Yeah, and so so uh, the the kind of the the trust that it'll all work out is based in that again for them. This like idea that eventually, once he learns the language, um, he'll be able to support and uh, and and continue to continue the family stability. Now, some of that gets radically disillusioned throughout the play. I think some. I think this play is is dealing with the disillusionment of that American dream, and yeah, and that the, comes in a couple different ways. The the I think it's maybe even more. I would maybe even make it more sharp. You may quibble with me on this, Jackson. I think some of the play is talking about the way that pursuing money specifically sort of rots the best parts of your life. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't think I would quibble with that at all. I mean, you you look at the 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 big reveal in this play is Ralph realizing through Myron stumbling into the room and like sharing the secret with the whole room <laughs> that the whole family tricked Sam into marrying Henny because uh because she was pregnant. Um, so, and it, so it, it's even, it's even harsher than that, of course, because when Sam, when Henny apparently actually tells Sam because she doesn't love him, she doesn't really like being married to him. So just sort of in fed up frustration, she finally just tells Sam that the baby is not actually his. Sam comes over in despair to the burger's apartment saying, Henny just told me the baby's not mine. What am I going to do? And Myron and Bessie go to great lengths to convince him that she was <laughs> joking. Yeah. It's a whole thing. Yep. And 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 not only that, but then Ralph's kind of idol in the family, his grandpa Jake, he finds out is culpable in that as well, that Jake knew about it. So so that he finds all that out in in a in kind of a fast moment in the scene and you kind of see the rug ripped out from under him that that and and, and that just kind of that goes to kind of further radicalize him a little bit and, and, uh, and make him think that this, I mean, in the end he gives up the money that is given to him or says that he will. Right. The ending is probably the strongest argument for that as a view because Ralph's liberation, his true liberation, the moment he says, it's like I'm a week old again. My life is renewed. I figured it all out is not when he finally receives the $3,000 inheritance and is able to pursue his dreams of making his own buck, getting that first base step up on the, the world but when he decides to give all that up mm-hmm yep start off go and find his friends basically um and uh see what they can make in the world so what do we make of somebody like henny in this world jackson she's i, I have to admit that her character made me a little uncomfortable at times some of the decisions that she makes, I find I sort of scratch my head at and you, you, I find it seems like you could pretty easily level some criticism at her. And then also some of the ways she talks about things. A number of the other characters make the joke or maybe, you know, the joke with some element of truth that she's sort of looking for a millionaire to sail her away on a yacht or something like that rather than just find somebody she can be happy with. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's uh, I, so I, I agree to some level and I wonder if that's another version of the American dream that Odette's is addressing at this point this idea especially like uh, an East Coast view of like well we'll go out to Long Island and and meet someone and it's all gonna be you know Long Island lifestyle from there um uh, so, so so I wonder if Henny's uh role or function within the play is to address that myth as well and kind of see the the slow breakdown of that goal um, and, and, and where, where it leaves someone by the end of it. Well, I, I would be inclined to agree with you if not for the last like five pages of the script. <laughs> 
That's a good point. Where she leaves her husband and her baby uh, on the assumption that her mother, the overworked, ever-stressed Bessie, will take care of the baby for her to uh, leave the family behind and sail off to Havana with Mo. Yeah, that, that's a rough, rough part of the play. Um, <laughs> it's such a, I mean, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and even, I mean, it's even further complicated with the knowledge that Mo was her original abuser, um, which which is a, a, a revelation at the end of the play. So she's leaving with this person who she has a complicated relationship with and uh yeah, yeah. like the, the story it's a little bit unclear exactly what happened we only get these past references to it at the end but it's it's something like here's what i think maybe happened mo as a boarder was the first person that henny slept ever slept with and basically, as soon as he managed to sleep with her, he started treating her like dirt. And it seems like he may have actually moved out or left town for a couple of weeks after that, um, which she sort of feels like was him abandoning her. Something like that feel around the world to you? Yeah, I'm not a hundred. I honestly need another read through of the play to get the the all the history of it. My first uh, reading of the play, and I think it tracked with my rereading of that scene, was was that uh I read it at least as he went away to war in the in the middle time in there. And yeah, so that could be. so when she was quite young, uh they they have this relationship. He goes away to war, loses his leg and comes back and their relationship just never became anything else other than this this leaving that happened and and they're still kind of especially Mo seems to to have then put himself back in the situation. He's boarding at her house to try to pursue that, but um, he's dealing with his own feelings of ineptitude and and loss, and uh, she, pretty appropriately, is keeping him at arm's distance. Yeah, and and so all throughout the play, Mo is, is pursuing Henny. It's very clear that he wants her. In fact, in the... One of the many very bizarre character descriptions given at the beginning of the play, um, it, it, his it, the description of of Mo is as follows. I'm just reading a snippet of it. He has been everywhere and seen everything. All he wants is Henny. He's pursuing her fairly hardcore, and as you say, she's keeping him at arm's length. In fact, even at one point, a little more than arm's length, where she slaps him across the face because he's also in the midst of very clearly wanting to be with her, speaking to her and of her very cruelly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very cruelly. And and uh, and he, he refers to her pretty pretty meanly uh, throughout the second half of the play as Feinschreiber, um, which is her, her, her new last name. Um, he's very bitter about the fact that she got married to Sam. Um, he even in like the first scene gets like close to trying to marry her instead of Sam. Oh, but- that is just, that is so stinking funny. That's yeah. one of the best jokes in the whole play. So Henny 
has just admitted that she's pregnant, and Bessie has immediately said, "Okay, we're we're getting bring Sam over to dinner tomorrow night. The engagement will be set up by this weekend. It's happening. Much to her daughter's protest, it's happening." Mo, we already know, is trying to pursue Henny because apparently she blew him off for a date that night. And Mo uh, walks into the room and says, "Yeah, hey, what's going on?" And Bessie says, "Well, we're all sort of sad because uh, we're going to lose Miss Henny. She just she just nailed down her engagement." <laughs> and the discussion that's. Pretty Pretty funny. The discussion goes on for a little bit, and Mo, after learning this disappointing news, turns bitter and angry about it and starts to say a couple of pretty unkind, pretty nasty things. She's not in the room, but speaking of her. And then at one point he says something like, you know what, maybe, you know, I would even marry her. I could I could be engaged to her. Right. And Bessie, who's just told him that she's engaged to someone else, basically says, well, you can. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just turns it real quick on a dime. Oh, um, and that is so funny. And when you listen to like an audio production, like I did the LATW production, the comic timing can just <laughs> really nail that joke home. It's just like that that briefest pause. Well, you can, <laughs> you yeah. can be engaged. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, it's it's worth noting, of course, that this sort of behavior in another play is just bad. <laughs> Like, well, like I think the, it's even bad in this it's, play. It's bad in this play. I, I think I think something is trying to be communicated within the world that this play was written with these two. I think that there is some heroism at the end of this play in them leaving and going off uh, off into the world together, um, and, and some representation too, like. I, I I don't think it's an accident that they're sailing to Cuba. Right where Castro and communism reign, and in the midst of a play that is a lot about the failings of capitalism and the professed successes of Marxism, at least if one character thinks. Yeah, early Marxism and and the 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 kind of utopia that it was building. Um, so so I think that this play is trying to make something of that relationship and the the freedom that they claim at the end of the play. Um, however, the actions of of that relationship and how they are played out, I agree with your original thesis. They they land on my my cultural ears as kind of confusing and hard to identify with. Yeah, so like I listened to this audio production, and that's not like the seminal production or anything or the exact right interpretation, but uh, Mark Ruffalo, who was playing Mo, and I, I'm sorry that I don't know the actress's name who was playing uh, uh, Henny. I almost said Hesse. Henny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, they played those intermediate scenes throughout the play that build to this moment where they decide to be together at the end with a very sexual undertone. I mean, they're saying mean things to each other, but it's it's like sort of a soap opera. Not not that their performance were bad like a soap opera, but it's in the sense that like they're saying mean things, but really the desire is overwhelming for each other. Sure, sure. And, and I suppose that, that must be be there in some way otherwise the end is a come total and complete 180 yeah yeah you'd, you'd have to justify with that sort of that sort of uh through line of at least shared interest with each other um whatever it was born out of however it came about there's a shared interest with each other now um for for a while and i just want to i i, I want to have this thought on the air to have you be sure that we're on the same <laughs> page on it for a while i was wondering around whether uh mo was the father of her child i was too and it it was only and I, and especially just in the first experience of the show of course we prepare lots of different ways we read lots of scenes read 
read the play multiple times, watch clips, all different kinds of things. But just in my first experience of the play, I, by the end of the play, I was thinking the same thing. Maybe he's the father. The timeline of the events of this family is very unclear. Even their relationships is a little bit unclear. Um, Jackson and I spent a lot of time before we started recording making sure we were on the same page <laughs> yeah. because Who's I mentioned bizarre character descriptions. The character descriptions at the beginning of the play don't include context of a relationship at all. <laughs> nope. <laughs> In fact, I believe it says that Bessie is the is the wife of Myron. Actually, I think the opposite. Myron is the husband of Bessie. That might be the only description of the relationships of the characters given, maybe through the whole play, other yeah. than in the dialogue. Yeah, what you, you have glean. to like track together that Jacob's the father or grandfather by like people saying Papa and tracking right. who's who's so, saying it. So you got to glean a lot of detail. So I thought the same thing upon experiencing the play a couple of more times after that. I I'm fairly convinced that's not the case because in Act 1 when Henny admits that she's pregnant she has a letter which seems to indicate that she tried to find the real father and they discovered that he was using a fake name and had skipped town and that I I don't see a lot of reason to disbelieve that piece of information that we're given. Yeah, and I I tend to agree with you. I think I I I, th- I think that would be an awful lot of subterfuge for them to be like to be uh, kind of uh, planning that together somehow. And it's subterfuge that does not play off within the action of the plot. Um, I think the the choice at the end uh, also has some credence with that. It's not a play about Sam leaving and Mo and uh, Henny raising their child. It's a play about leaving that relationship and 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 going off to something new. Right. And, and that weirdly is sort of Ralph's dream. It's, it's odd that Henny and Mo get to ultimately live the thing that Ralph has been saying he's going to do forever, which is just to leave, (laughs) abandon all their responsibilities and take off. That's what Ralph's been threatening to do, even hoping to do a scene after scene. And at the end, he's the one that's going to stick around get his nose to the grindstone. I think he even talks about sort of organizing a union among yeah. his fellow workers where he's at. He's going to stay around and try to make his life better, even choosing to give away the money the insurance is going to pay him. And Henny, who's the one with the child, who's decided on a path for her life or seemed to at one point or or probably more fairly to the character, had a path decided for her that she's not been happy about, who sails off away from everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the strongest the strongest argument for Ralph as the protagonist lies in that final scene where he uh, gives up the money and gives up on some of his or uh, oh, uh, kind of wakes up to a new not to not to lean into the title of the play, but uh, wakes up to a new dream, a new type of life that he's excited by that he feels empowered into. And in that way. Uh, Jake kind of gives that gift to him. He gives him the power to make that choice for himself. And, and in doing so, he, even the description at the end of the play, he kind of stands there in like this uh, kind of uh, Marxist stance of, of strength at the end of the play. So perhaps the most major plot thing that we have not really investigated very deeply yet is the suicide or, accident of Jacob. Jacob goes, he, he, he has this dog, I think Tootsie maybe, um, and he's supposed to take the dog up onto the roof to use the bathroom and get outside before bed every night. And so he does that one night at the end of Act Two. And then 
a minute, two minutes, three minutes later, the landlord or the building owner, manager, something like that. Uh, again, we don't have exactly what his relationship is, only clues gleaned. Whoever this character is comes screeching upstairs after ringing the door frantically and says, your, your grandpa's dead. He fell off the roof. And earlier in the play, Jacob had given uh, uh, Morty, the the uncle, uh, papers which leave his insurance money to Ralph, and the audience sees that happen, and Morty knows that it happens, etc. So, I I think it's an open. I don't think there are any facts offered about what happened. But what's your sense, Jackson? True accident? Do we believe in true accidents in theater? Hmm. Suicide? <laughs> Yeah, um, it's it's complicated. Um, so so I agree that there are no facts. There's some doubts thrown around uh, by the end of the play. Um, one of the one of the one of the the things that obfuscates the answer is it's snowing outside um, when he dies. So there is some credence to him possibly slipping off of the roof when he took the dog up. Um, the other thing that comes up is a bluff that Mo does towards the end of the play where he says that he has the suicide note. He's trying to scare off the, um, he's trying to scare Morty into canceling the insurance person coming over and finalizing everything. Um, and he, he scares him off with this suicide note that he claims that he has. And it turns out that he's lying. He gives the note to Ralph and it's a, it's a blank piece of paper. So he rips it up. Um, so there's a lot of um, uh, wondering around it, and I think the clarity comes from looking at the action before Jake goes up onto the roof. Um, what happens there is the final fight between Ralph and Bessie over Blanche. Um, uh, Ralph kind of begs his mom to let uh, Blanche stay with them, and she says, no, not in a million years. If she was drowning in a lake, I wouldn't help her. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. She says that yeah. to her son, who's in love with that girl. Yep. And notably, Jake is standing right there the whole time. Um, there's a of the few, very, very few stage directions in this play. There are two or three that have Jake fully dressed in the evening, standing watching, um, and and calls for that to happen. I think that's important. Um, the other, I, I also think it's important that this is the same night in which Jake has been Jake Jacob. He's been ridiculed nearly to the point of tears over his Marxist views. To the point views. of tears. To the, the point end. of tears uh, about his Marxist views. He he uh, he and Morty. I think maybe this, we get the feeling that this is maybe a routine argument that's had when Morty's around because Morty's so successful as a business person. Uh, but Morty and then the whole family with him, except for Ralph, uh, really lays into Jacob about believing. You know, comparing what he thinks to being to believing in Santa Claus, all this different kind of stuff about his uh, deeply held political economic views. Hmm. Notably, this is the same night that it comes uh, that Ralph finds out that everyone knew and tricked Sam into marrying Henny. And um, accuses Jacob of being uh, Ralph, who Jacob has this special relationship with, a special alignment with. Ralph accuses Jacob of being complicit even in that. Mm-hmm. And 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 most physically, um, what happens almost immediately before he takes the dog onto the roof, 
Bessie goes in and he he has uh, his room uh, that used to be Ralph's room. Jacob's room is filled with books and is filled with records. Um, he loudly plays music from the room throughout the play. Um, he's he's very fond of Italian opera singers and. Um, Bessie goes into his room in one of the the kind of climactic fight moments and breaks all of his records, breaks them in half, shatters them, comes out and says, maybe this will teach you, essentially. Uh, maybe you'll think of this again next time uh, instead of uh, trying to put ideas into Ralph's head. And, um, and, 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 and so all of this is in the air as he, again, late at night, um, he goes into his room and then comes back out to watch a number of these scenes fully dressed. Um, I think I think uh, that's important. Um, he goes to take the dog out onto the roof and falls off the roof. Now, in Act One, uh, in a in the middle or at near the end of a fight that he has with Bessie on similar themes, uh, he basically says, "You know, one of these days, Bessie." you're going to you're going to upset me enough you're going to say enough terrible stuff blah 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 that i'm go- basically he says something as vague as that i'm going to leave and never come back so he gives this sort of vague foreshadowy threat in act 1 yeah um i wonder th- this is where the conversation could start to get a little messy um but i wonder if this is the kind of germanic uh uh, wandering off into the woods to go hunting thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like in in whatever way this is, this is the cultural moment where where he's realizing that his help, especially to Ralph, is after his death at this point. That he's the the help that he can give him is is a deferred help. Um, and so in some ways he goes And this off. is the same night too, it, it, just to support your point, this is the same night that he's given Morty the letter, which says my insurance money goes to Ralph. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he goes off with his dog <laughs> to the roof and just, um, wanders until he doesn't come back. Um, I wonder if that, I, I think... I, I think with the at least with the way that it's written, the way that so much plausibility is there for some sort of accident, I think he goes to the roof knowing what he's going up to. To what degree he's planning, I'm not sure I know. I'm not sure the play tells me. Um, but uh, to go up on the roof in dangerous weather, um, insisting uh, taking the dog away from two people to to be sure that he goes up onto the roof... Um, I th- I think he knows what he's walking up there for. I agree. I, I would tend to agree with you. He he seems like a very sad man to me. Um, he in fact, in, this is the same night he Morty after talking through the insurance stuff. Morty says something like, "You know, pops, you got you got so many great years ahead. There's nothing to worry about." And poor Jacob just says, "No, all my great years are behind." That's <laughs> what he seems like, and. The thing that I will remember from this play, perhaps, is this loving, special relationship between Jacob and Ralph. Uh, that great, it's just a charming, pure grandfather-grandson relationship. It's in an extremely 
packed, tight, and tense environment uh, where heads are inclined to blow. But it's the same kind of really special relationship between grandparent and grandchild that you see all over the world where they're even kind of aligned against the wishes of the parents. (laughs) Uh, And in this play, very much so and in a very extreme sense. But you connect with the core human element of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, throughout the play, uh, Jacob is in Ralph's corner. Um, he he fights to try to get to the phone in time when uh, to answer the phone for his girlfriend when Jake can't or for when Ralph can't be there. And so you see throughout the play um, this 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 strong relationship between them. And I think again, just to just to bring it up again, the 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 action of the end of the play is an action inspired by Jacob's uh, kind of final gift to Ralph. Ralph giving up the 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 insurance money back to the family is something that could only happen with Jake uh, giving him the power in the family, taking the power away from Bessie for a moment and giving it to Jake to make it des- or giving it to Ralph to make a decision. The other thing maybe that 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 lends itself towards that idea is that this is the, the same night that Jacob dies is the same night where Ralph discovers that this girl that he's in love with, who he calls like the thing that makes him want to wake up and sing. He has such a great description. He says something like, she's like French words. I mean, such <laughs> beautiful, idealistic, young love language. He finds out because she's an orphan that she's going to be sent away unless she can come and live with them or Ralph can move in with her, can, can support her himself. And so perhaps the idea comes some from that too Bessie is not going to let uh, this young woman who she despises move in and what sleep in the same bed as Ralph before marriage that's one point she makes so that's all in the same night too which perhaps gives Jacob just another reason to do what he perhaps does yeah yeah, it's a. I mean, it's 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 a messy beat of the play. This whole play is is uh, messy family relationships. <laughs> yeah, it, and, nothing about this play is clean or easy, and in some ways, it makes the last few pages a little odd for me because it ends so cleanly and so starkly, simply, purely, obviously that for such a gritty, subtle, uh, messy, hard to keep your hands clean kind of a play, the ending is a little clean maybe for me. I'm a little bit, I I left the, the last few pages of the play a little bit like, hmm, that was, that was the end. Yeah, mm-hmm. it ties it up quickly. You almost, I mean, certainly if you went to the next day, the play continues. the 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 life of this family um, does not. Uh, I, I think I think Ralph now has more power at the end of the play, and he'll have more say in the family. But Bessie will wake up the next morning with more, <laughs> more uh, energy, more protection for her family, more desire to be sure that the family is okay. I think. But that some be- crucial things have changed, and he's gone. That's a pretty mm-hmm. crucial thing. And the insurance money now, Ralph has some power to say, "I can give you this money," and you'd hope that there's going to be some negotiation around that. But I'm not going to get any flack anymore for only paying certain amounts of the bills but i can talk to whatever girls i want i mean he'll have a different role in the world of the home and Mm -hmm. the the family will be different having some money 
Family will be different having some money. Family will be different dynamically with different people not around anymore. It's down to kind of three um, that will be there by the end of the play. And then uh, presumably Sam and a, and a baby will show up at some point, too. Yeah, <laughs> but, oh, man. <laughs> the poor plight of Sam. Yeah. That guy gets the rough end of this play. It he breaks got, my got, heart. He got a bad deal. At, at one point, he has a line, I kid you not, where I think he just says basically – I'm lonely. No one likes me. Yeah. His character description is that too. Like wakes up in middle of night and stares into the darkness, wondering why people doesn't like him. Yeah. Well, Jackson, as our last little thing here, I talked about what what I'll carry with me from the play, this relationship between Jacob and Ralph. What will you carry with you? What's what's one uh, thing that you'll remember from this play? This, this really piece of American history and American dramatic history. Yeah, I think uh, one certainly one of the things to kind of bear in mind in leaving this play is the uh, the holding of family relationships and and how to navigate them well. Um, and, and and just the warning that like uh, especially uh, Bessie lost a good chunk of her family. Um, because, because of her fervor, Myron lost a good chunk of his family because of his lack of fervor. Um, it's again, a little bit of an argument for Ralph as, as a bit of a central character. It's only Ralph's turn at the end in like hero mode that he commits to the family again. He's like, no, 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 I'm going to stick this out. Everything has fallen away. Now I'm awaking and I will, I will recommit to the family. So that the tenuous balance between family relationship, I think is what I'm taking away that there's there's people who are so close sometimes like like uh, the grandfather Jake that you don't know about until they're gone there are people like uh, parents and siblings uh, that you don't know about until they're gone and and just the the staying awake to those things and uh, and how how everyone is interacting with each other is kind of what I what I uh, was very excited by in reading this play and seeing that dynamic between everyone This play is so timely. We talked about it. You know, it's near 100 years old, but especially the economic commentary about the working class, the need for something to change, the frustrations and the desire for a better lot, but the inability to get. I mean, this play feels like 2020 America, despite its 85-year-old age. And maybe the 2006 production, because it was so star-studded, will... uh, prevent a really major production of this play again in the coming years, but I would not be shocked to see a strong star-studded mounting of this play in our contempor- with our contemporary world, with yeah. what we're facing right now. The, the way that the, what he wrote in this play is happening today. Mm-hmm. Today. You could easily do an anachronistic production of this play with just a couple tweaks um, to to make it to make it happen and relevant now, or you could just like you could just yeah, do just the play. Do it as a period. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> yeah. A, I mean it's a period piece nowadays. It's a play from the thirties, but mm-hmm. it do it like that, and it tells a story of twenty twenty America amazingly. And yeah, a really specific one. 
<laughs> so if you do do a production of this play at our recommendation, hopefully that'd be cool. Um, Man, we, <laughs> if there's off-Broadway or Broadway producers that are listening to this podcast and they just go, we've got to do it, they oh, yes. better become patrons. Right. Hey, go over to Patreon. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. You off-Broadway or Broadway level producers, you best support us because we know you're not giving us credit. It's true. <laughs> but for all of y'all out there who are not off-Broadway producers who are listening to the show, if there's anything you want to add to this conversation, whether you've read the play, whether you've been in the play, whether you've studied it, or whether you mount a production at your community theater house, we'd love to keep having this conversation with you. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, at NoScriptPodcast is the username on all of those platforms. We also have a, G- have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about Awaken Sing by Clifford Odets with you. And if you'd like to recommend our podcast to a friend, that would be awesome. That's one of the great ways the podcast continues to grow. Listenership goes up week to week. It's amazing to us. We're so excited by that. You can help that by sharing the podcast with people you know that might like it. That's probably the best thing you can do for us besides becoming patrons. If you'd like to recommend the podcast, they can find it, the person you're recommending it to. They can find us at Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Podbean, where we are hosted. We also supposed to link to the new episode every Monday on Facebook, so that's an easy place to find us as well. Get excited for Mini Month. It is coming up soon, and until next week when we're talking about another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script. We'll see ya.